As we begin a new year, with all its resolutions and promises to ourselves, it is important, I think, for us to ask and reflect upon a simple question. Who or what do you follow? Who or what are you following? We live in a media, social media age where following is the normal thing. Who you follow on Instagram or social, uh, Facebook or TikTok or Twitter or YouTube or many of the other myriad of social media platforms. Who do you follow to get your news? Who do you follow as an authoritative voice? Someone you listen to, someone whose words hold credence and authority in your, in your life. What philosophies or worldview do you follow? Are you a disciple of? Are you following? That language of followership is important not just because of social media, because we are all followers. Even the great leaders among us themselves are followers of someone and something. Be it a particular leadership style or philosophy, another guru or someone who has given them the, uh, the ability to lead the way they do. But we are all followers and therefore it is important for us to ask, who or what are we following? Because by following some, we are by default not following others. We follow this way and by, not, and by following this way, we are not following this way. We live in a world of absolute polarity, of black and white, where the division seems to be getting bigger and bigger. So to align ourselves by following this person, this news source, this authority, is automatically to say that we do not follow this news source, this authority, this group of people. The mantra of followership has been really uh, something we've heard a lot of in the last three years. Three simple words that have been echoed time and time again. Follow the science. Said so often that those three words have no meaning anymore because it's becoming increasingly evident that those words are just being used by politicians and the powers that be to enforce or inflict a certain way of seeing and understanding the world. Now, I'm not going to get into COVID here other than to use that as an example of followership. We are all following, we are all listening to particular voices in our lives. And so it's important, as I said, as we begin this new year, to take stock of those voices that we are following. That brings us to the wise men, the wise guys, the magi. They would have been the scientists or the academics of their day. We don't know where they're from. We can speculate they're from the east, which could mean as far as Persia or maybe even the far east, but more likely something a little bit more closer to home in Judea. But the point is, regardless of where they've come from, these wise men represent the wisdom of the age. They were men who did indeed follow the science, such as it existed in that time and place. They followed the stars. They measured the movements of the planets. They were the academics. They were people who had the authority of kings and queens. Kings and queens would consult with them to hear 
tell us what the stars say. And that's where that, that limit between hard science as we know it now and maybe superstition like horoscopes and that sort of thing is where the wise men, that kind of those things kind of overlap a little bit. But that's not to detract from their learning. They knew the significance of celestial events. Indeed, our own scientists in our own day and age can confirm that the star of Bethlehem was an important celestial event that was probably the alignment of, I believe it's Jupiter and Saturn. Um, I can't remember. And we actually had this astronomical alignment uh, within the last five years. The star of Bethlehem did appear. It appears only uh, once every few millennia, and so it did happen again. And the significance of that was not lost on scientists today, and it wasn't lost on the Magi then. They knew that something important was happening because the skies would always tell them that something important was about to happen. Now again, that overlap between science, uh, between astronomy and astrology was a little bit more uh, pronounced back then than it would be today. But again, the Magi were willing to follow the evidence, follow the science. They were willing, indeed they could have been commanded by their own rulers, go and seek out what is happening. Go seek out why this significant event is happening here and now. Find out what it means. There's always interpretation. We have data, but the data has to be interpreted and understood. It's where we give, let's, that's where we, um, our followership comes in. We understand the facts, but then we need someone to help us understand the facts. We give those interpreters an authoritative voice because they're the ones that help us to understand. So these magi are sent out as ambassadors. They carry with them the authority of their own kings and queens. We understand how that works, right? A Canadian embassy on foreign soil is, for all intents and purposes, Canadian soil. The ambassador is a representative of Canada in that country. So too, these kings, with all their learning, with all their knowledge, are sent as emissaries of their own kingdoms to find out the meaning, to interpret what has happened. And so they knew that it signified something important, the birth of royalty the birth of royalty. Now, how they came to the conclusion that it was the king of the Jews, the Bible does not tell us. But they followed the evidence that would lead them to conclude that a newborn king of the Jews would be born in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is the place where the Jewish kings reigned. So they made their way. They made their way to Jerusalem to go see the king. King Herod, we know, is not a reputable figure from other readings in scripture and in history. Kind of a very paranoid, bloodthirsty man. Like all rulers, like all politicians, he is obsessed with retaining power and with preventing anyone from usurping his power by political machination, by coup d'etat, by the birth of a rival. So when the wise men from this foreign country show up at his door, this Jewish king thinks, what is going on? Why have these Gentile emissaries come 
and ask about the birth of the king. I know my wife hasn't had a child. I know my concubines are not pregnant. This is perplexing. And so Herod is now worried as a paranoid politician as he is. What's going to happen? Because if there is another claimant to the throne, as we all know from history, that's how wars start. So Herod puts in, a place, uh, puts in place a plan. He calls his own wise men, his own magi, his own scribes that know the scriptures. They know the Bible. He brings them before these other magi and he says to them, tell me, what do the scriptures tell us about the place of birth of the magi? Now, of course, the unwritten text here is so that Herod can quietly dispose of this threat to the throne, this danger in the manger, so that he can quietly, in the name of preventing war and bloodshed, I'm sure he would say, but really to prevent anyone from taking his throne, his power, and his glory, he puts that plan in place. But, Explicitly, he says, it's because I too want to, with you, Gentile rulers, fall down and worship this newborn king. I too, like you, am seeking the truth. I want to follow where you go so that I may see this king and worship him. All the lies of those who are in power. So the Magi have their marching orders. Not that Herod could tell them what to do because they were committed to following the star wherever it led. And they find that the star leads, again, not to the palace in Jerusalem, but to a small town in the shadow of that great city. It leads them to a probably fairly nondescript family home. They open the door, and what do they find? A baby and his mother. Now, what's interesting is that the text of the scripture doesn't say that the wise men stopped in their tracks and scratched their heads and pulled at their beards and said, what? We were expecting a little bit more significance. We were expecting something to be a little bit more spectacular. Here's a peasant girl and her baby. Not exactly the kind of welcome we were expecting, but no. The text tells us these wise men immediately fall down and worship. Their journey has led them this far. They have followed the star and they are not in a position that they are going to question, that they're going to put on their academic hats and try to figure out what's going on. They fall down and worship. They fall down and worship. This experience will doubtlessly leave them changed men. We don't know what happens to the Magi after other than God appears to them in a dream and says, don't go back to Herod. Go back to your own countries in a different way. And they do just that. And then they kind of fade off in the story and we wonder, okay, it's a significant event again. We understand what it means to have these three learned men present these extravagant gifts. Well, the gold is extravagant. We may think, well, frankincense and myrrh you can get them on Amazon for pretty cheap. But gold, why not just give gold and gold and gold? Well, we know the significance of the gift is gold is for a king. The kings give out of their lavish wealth a symbolic gesture of recognition of the kingship of this child. Myrrh, a healing ointment. It's medicine. 
They recognize, although they maybe don't understand it, that Jesus is the one who will be and is that great healer. Healing people from their blindness, from their deafness, but also healing them in the spiritual illness that has plagued humanity since our beginning and our fall. And the gift of frankincense, the gift of incense. The Jewish tradition and the Christian tradition burn incense as a fragrant visual symbol of prayers of God's people here on earth rising up to heaven. And Jesus, our great high priest, takes our prayers and offers them and perfects them and gives them to the Father on our behalf. So the significance of these gifts confirms who Jesus is. And the fact that the Jewish king cannot recognize the true ruler of the throne of the house of David, but these Gentile foreigners can, is profoundly significant. Because I'm pretty sure most of us here, although I'm, I'm just guessing, are Gentiles, i.e. non-Jews, by descent. So the significance is for all people. And the irony is that it is these Gentile rulers who recognize the rightful king to the throne of David, but the rightful king of the universe. They were willing to follow. They were willing to pay the cost. They were willing to worship. Now we know the rest of the story that happens. Often in our Christmas celebrations, we don't like to talk about this next part of the story because this is the part of the story that can threaten to damper our Christmas spirit and enthusiasm. It's the part of the story where Herod finds out that he has been betrayed by these wise men and flies into a fit of rage. His plans to quietly take care of this usurper to the throne are now thrown out, and now he has to take drastic steps. The drastic step he does to protect himself, to protect his power and his glory, is that he orders the massacre of all boys to and under in Jerusalem and Bethlehem in that area. We have an infant child here, a week old. That baby right here would be killed without a second thought. Children, boys up to two. It should sicken us. That's why we don't like to read it at Christmas. But we know from history that this is the lengths that rulers will go to to protect themselves, to listen and to make their followers, to make their followers listen to them, to demand their obedience, to demand that they be followed. Because the cost of not following the rulers of the age is it will cost you your life. So the rulers, the kings, they go on their way. Their lives are changed, but we don't know how. But not knowing how is an important moment for our meditation and our contemplation. As we ask ourselves, who or what are we following? Then we ask ourselves, how by following those people, those voices, those authorities, how has that shaped my life for better or for worse? How am I ranking? To whom am I giving ultimate authority in my life? The question of the wise men, of course, is are you following the star? All the heavens declare the glory of God. The creation itself is meant to bring us to that point of understanding that there is a God. But it doesn't bring us to the point of worship. 
It takes a star shining on the face of that newborn infant baby Jesus, shining on him, showing that he is the heavenly light, that no earthly light can overcome because he is the source of all light. To follow him is to go on the greatest adventure that life can offer us. It's not an adventure that won't be without cost or challenges or suffering, but it is a life worth living because he is the one worth following. So in conclusion, to offer as a way of reflecting and meditating upon the story of the wise men, I offer this poem from T.S. Eliot called The Journey of the Magi. T.S. Eliot, of course, is that uh, famous modernist uh, Anglo, or Ang Anglican poet uh, from the 20th century. And he offers us a poetic reflection of one of the wise men looking back on his encounter and how this encounter changed his life. How this encounter with Christ can change our lives if we but, if we but follow him. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter. And the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities dirty and the towns unfriendly and the villages dirty and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night sleeping in snatches with voices singing in our ears saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet, below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on a low sky. And an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued, and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago. I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth hard was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. The death here that the wise man offers us is a reflection on our own death. Not just our mortal death, but the death that we must put to ourselves every day. The death of insisting that my way is the voice that must be listened to, that my devices and desires are the things that matter most, that I am the center of the universe.
We must put to death these things if we are to follow that star, if we are to follow the voice of the one who beckons us, follow him. The word that spoke all things into creation, the word made flesh. Will you follow him?